It's a whole system that needs to be put in place to change the culture of an organization. When ERGs are used in a way that I know you advocate, and um, and some of the you know the best organizations are using them, they could be enormously helpful because um, a group of um, LGBTQ folks, for example, have a, can have a far greater insight into what are some of the subtle ways that our organization excludes people like us. Um, a group of um, a, a group of women can have a, a much keener sense of how gender dynamics are playing out in unconscious ways in the organization. Because I think anybody who's who's listening would know that if you if you want to understand um, how uh, the dynamics of an identity group play out, you're far more likely to get a more fulsome understanding of that from people who are in the non-dominant group than in the dominant group. And it's not because people in the dominant group are bad. It's just because if you're in a non-dominant group, you need to pay attention to those dynamics all the time. That's Howard Ross, my guest for today's episode of ERG Power Talk. Howard is talking about the important role that ERG leaders and members can play in helping their organizations, colleagues, and leaders to evolve in their collective ability to manage their biases and create more inclusive cultures. I will tell you a little more about Howard and the program shortly, but first, Let's take a moment to focus on the mission of this podcast and to acknowledge our sponsors. This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others that are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and find stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors. Atrium Health, Freighter Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, Lockheed Martin, Avenod, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. According to McKinsey, more than $8 billion a year is spent on diversity training. And according to a recent survey by Mercer and Red Thread, more than $3.5 billion of that money is spent combating unconscious bias. Now, generally, these efforts to combat biases appear in the form of a few hours to half-day or full-day training programs where a facilitator makes participants aware of the biases that commonly impact a variety of business decisions. From who we hire, who we promote, how we show up in our marketplaces, etc. As someone who's run hundreds of these sessions myself, I can tell you that they're really very illuminating. They can literally open our eyes to the invisible forces that shape how we perceive our world and the decisions that we make. There is, however, one thing that these programs will not do in and of themselves, and that is change the way that we and others in our organization evolve our behaviors toward more inclusiveness in the long run. To achieve that type of long-term high impact and lasting change, we need more than an unconscious bias training class. 
The good news here is that as ERG leaders and ERG members, you can be part of the important component that's missing that can result in that long-term evolution. In this episode of ERG Power Talk, we're going to start in part one with a basic overview of what unconscious bias is and how it impacts us. In the second part of this discussion, we're going to take a deeper dive into what you can do to support that longer-term evolution that leads to our organizations not succumbing to negative biases as easily and, as a result, becoming more inclusive. My guest today in this journey is going to be a dear friend of many years who's a lifelong social justice advocate. He's also a builder of innovations in the field of diversity and inclusion and a unifier of people, organizations, and causes. As an author, he's been a thought leader in paving the way to a better understanding of how we perceive the world around us and make our decisions. Hi, I'm Howard Ross. I'm the co-founder of Udarta Consulting. Previously was the founder of Cook Ross. I'm a writer, I've written four books and a fifth on the way, and I'm glad to be with you, Joe. Howard, welcome to ERG Power Talk. You know, Howard, I know you for quite a few years, but for those of my listeners who may not know you that well, can you share a bit of your journey with us? Well, you know, it's interesting, Joe. I think we all are products of our times. And, you know, I was born in January 1951 in the shadow of World War II to a a Jewish family uh, with roots in Eastern Europe. So um, we had horrific family loss during the Holocaust. We know the 43 members of our family were killed on August 2nd, 3rd, 1942, when the Nazis um, killed all but 100 people in the 5,000-person village that my grandfather grew up in in Western Ukraine. Um, And those were just the people we knew about. You know, scant, I mean, just almost untold numbers of others just disappeared. And, um, and I had grandparents who were activists. My grandfather on my mother's side, um, actually, he was the one who came from that town, was, um, was one of the people who put together um, the, the group that purchased the Exodus ship in Baltimore Harbor. He was also a co-founder of the NAACP in Baltimore. And was, and you know, we used to hear stories about him about how he was the only grocer in the neighborhood who would give credit to African American families and things like that. And and you know, it's it's funny because whether all that stuff was true or not, or or it was apocryphal, it was very much the lesson that my parents were trying to teach. And my grandmother on my father's side similarly was an organizer for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And you know, there used to be stories about that, or or a story about my father um, when he was in the army, you know, trying to going to get a hotel room with one of his African-American friends. And when the African-American guy wasn't allowed to stay in the hotel, my dad slept out in the car with him, you know? So the, the, the point was, I think my parents were teaching us these lessons. And so I'd like to say that where that came from is I was, you know, I was raised right. And then, and then of course I was a child of the sixties. So I got involved in civil rights work when I was a teenager and then subsequently anti-war um, movement and um, did a lot of work with the farm workers union, Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta. As a matter of fact, I, one day when I was 19 years old, went to a training with Saul Alinsky and Fred Ross and met uh, Cesar Chavez and Flores Huerta and Dorothy Haidt and, and Fred Ross and all these people. And, you know, I wish I had a camera at that time. I wish we had cell phones, but, I, you know, but the point is I, I grew up in that. So that was sort of my, my roots. And then I became a teacher and a school administrator at a college. And when I became a school administrator, tripled the size of the school that I was running in a year and found out that nothing that I knew about managing people worked anymore. So I began to study organizational development and 
and culture change. And the two things came together in the mid 80s when the diversity movement was starting to kick in. And I, at that point, had moved into consulting. Um, and, you know, from there, it was sort of very natural that the things that I used to get tear gas thrown at before when I was a kid, they started to, you know, pay us money to do in corporations. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> yeah, I remember those protests too. So, Howard, where during the course of that journey did you first develop your interest in unconscious bias? I've had a fascination for a long time with how human beings operate, and it and it showed up. Um, you know, my my initial forays into unconscious bias really showed up out of my curiosity with why it was uh, that we would see when we were doing the work that you and I have done for so many years that we would run into good, decent people who just had these crazy attitudes. You know, and. You know, it's easy enough to brand people as racist or sexist and to kind of toss them out to the side. But the truth is that many of the people who I would engage in who had some of those attitudes were the kind of person who you'd want as your next door neighbor or, you know, they, they weren't awful people. They just had some really screwed up attitudes. And so that became a real curiosity to me. And um, and so that was what had me begin to study the topic so, so deeply. I've often heard you describe bias in a way that I find really refreshing. I consider it to be simple, clear, and blame-free. Can you share it with our listeners? No, I think, you know, basically bias is a function of the brain. And, and uh, you know, we know that we have these automatic reactions that are designed to protect us and, um, and also to help us move quickly through life. And the example I often give, Joe, is... You, know, you and I walk across a floor and don't even think about it. We just walk over to the counter to get what we want and walk back. Um, it doesn't even occur to us, is this floor secure? You know, will it hold my weight? Is there going to be a trap door there? Is there a hole under the rug that I'm going to fall through? You know, and any of those things which theoretically are possible, but we don't think about it because so often that's not the case. And, and overwhelmingly, that's not the case. Um, or, you know, but anybody who's got themselves burned on a stove before, or knows what it's like because the next two weeks when you walk up to that stove, you're sort of hesitant to touch it because in your mind, you know. And so what bias does is it prepares us and protects us in that way. Now, that's especially true for people. You know, if we, if we go back thousands and thousands of years ago and we were in caves and jungles or wherever we were, we'd see a group of people around a waterhole. We had to determine instantly whether it was us or them. And that determination might determine whether we lived or died. And so we learned very quickly to determine who's safe and who's not. And, um, and that, that function of bias can be enormously helpful and valuable to us in survival, but it also can lead to some of the things that we see, sadly, on a daily basis when a police officer pulls, pulls out their gun and shoots too quickly to, with an innocent black man or, um, or sees somebody as potentially more violent because they're black or something like that. And, so, so the, and, and when these biases get so deeply into our psyche that we're not even aware that they're there, then, of course, they become unconscious biases. But, but one of the things I say to people is the reason I named my, my book Everyday Bias was because I think we can get caught up in whether something is conscious or unconscious, when the truth is it's, it's really a continuum from things that are overtly conscious to things we're completely unconscious about and everything in between. So, for example, people who are overtly homophobic didn't consciously choose to be that way. You know, they were trained through their life experience to believe you have to believe what the church says, or this is a sin, or don't be, don't you know if you if you act like a girl, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know give you what for you know, if you bother that you know all this kind of stuff, and and so ultimately that becomes a conscious bias, but all the building blocks of it were quite unconscious. So, at some level, I think all bias is unconscious. And this bias learning process starts pretty early, doesn't it, Howard? 
there's research that shows that as early as three months, um, we detect in babies that they sense the difference between people of different racial groups. And they're usually more comfortable with the, with their own, obviously, with their parents and, and the like, and, and um, less comfortable. And, and the, the, a lot of times they do it by eye contact and things like this. Um, less comfortable with people who are different. Um, you know, one of the things that will be interesting to see is uh, some of the research that they're really just now starting to do on children of mixed race and how that shows up differently if you've got one parent of each of a different race. It's just something I'd be very interested in because four of my six grandchildren are mixed race. Now, you and I have talked about how even though we begin acquiring these biases early in life, that that doesn't mean that we're destined to always be a certain way, right, Howard? We, we can, in fact, throughout our lives, continue learning and adapting. And we can also learn to moderate and manage our impulses. Talk a little bit about that. The malleability is something that stays with us uh, throughout our lives. We actually have a remarkable capacity for neuroplasticity. The notion that you can't teach an old dog new tricks is not even true for dogs. Um, now, that doesn't mean necessarily that our inclination to have biases will go away because we will always have some biases because, as I said before, they're necessary for our functioning in life. But we can learn to be more observant about them. And the more we observe the biases in ourselves, the more we can see it in ourselves, the more we can control that behavior. And, and when I say to people, it's not, it's not unlike lots of other behavior. Like, you know, let's say, you know, you and I, Joe, are both very loquacious. We're, we, tend to, we tend to be very extroverted. We talk, we think out loud a lot, right? And so, and I'm sure like, like me, you've probably gotten feedback sometimes that you need to, you know, not talk so much, you know? And so, I, and so I, I know that about myself. And so I monitor myself. And that doesn't mean I always do a good job of it, which my wife reminds me on a regular basis. <laughs> I get feedback from a very similar source. But, um, but I am very conscious when I'm in groups sometimes to kind of put the brake on myself. I'll be about to say something and I'll say, no, you know, hold back a little bit. Let somebody else have some airtime. Um, if I wasn't aware that I had a tendency to talk so much, um, I wouldn't do that. I would just kind of unconsciously go ahead and blather on to whatever I wanted to say. So the awareness of it is what gives me the ability to track it. And then when I do that, it's not like the inclination stops. The metaphor I like to use is um, it's like stepping on a clutch in a standard transmission automobile. You know, when you step on that clutch, the motor doesn't stop running. It just stops moving the car forward. And so it's the same thing. You know, I can be aware that I have a bias, but the bias, may, that inclination might still be there, but I can, in, I can disengage it from being the determinant of my behavior. So if I, for example, am in a hiring situation and I know that I'm drawn to certain kinds of people or, or drawn away from certain kinds of people, and I know that that has nothing to do with the person in front of me, it's just old patterns that I've learned, then I can consciously, okay, say, okay, be careful now because this is the kind of person that sometimes turns you off. That's not their fault, you know? So just be careful about how the interview goes. And I'm more likely to give a fair interview that way. That doesn't mean I'll be 100%, but I'll be a lot more likely than if I just ignored it and just went with those feelings. So Howard, getting the type of self-control, self-mastery that we're talking about is not as easy as some might think it is. So what do you say to people and organizations that think that one four-hour unconscious bias program will do the trick? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I mean, I think that we live in a society, and it's, I think this is particularly true about American society, not exclusively, but I think particularly true about American society. We live in a society in which people are constant search, constantly searching for the instant pudding. You know, we're looking for the quick thing. More now than ever before, you know, we, we, you know between TED Talks and Twitterized conversations and all this stuff, it's like, you know, 
say it less, say it less. Or, you know, I wrote, a, I wrote a blog a few years ago called a short blog about why I hate short blogs, you know, um, you know, um, you know, blog has to be 400 to 800 words and no more, you know, and, and the problem with that is, of course, is that, and I mean this seriously, is that it, it causes us to, to kind of dummy down, um, the work that we need to do. You know, we have to reductivize everything so that we can fit it into these small spaces. And, and you know, that's fine if it's a TED talk because all you're doing is kind of turning people onto an idea with the hope that maybe they'll pursue it more. But when you're talking about the kind of stuff that you, you are referring to, Joe, which is, you know, how do we come into an organization and really change cultural behavior? Um, just putting people through a training program is not enough. Yep. And so what do you say, Howard, to those who take what you just said and then say, oh, so training doesn't work. Training has real value, and we've done an extensive study on what kind of training really has impact. And what we know is that actually um, the kind of training that has the greatest impact on creating more egalitarian behavior um, by people is when we teach people to understand how they think. Um, and how they're making decisions because, and this is research that was done at Arizona State Medical School and Lehigh University and a lot of other places, um, because most people do not wake up in the morning and wring their hands and say, how can I suppress women and people of color today? You know, I mean, there are some like that we know, and there, there are definitely some people who are egregious and we see sadly more of that out in public now. But overwhelmingly, the way it happens in organizations, and, and you know this even better than I do, Joe, with all your years of experience, you know, in working in corporate situation. Um, mostly they're people who think they're being fair and think they're doing a decent job and, and you know, don't even want to be unfair to anybody, but they never realize these blind spots that they have. So, so the first thing that we need to do is we need to make people aware that you do have the capacity to behave and believe in ways that are inconsistent with your values. But that's just a start because if you leave people with nothing more than that, they'll tend to go back to the same old behavior. I, I, I like to say it's like pushing on a cushion. You know, if you push on the cushion of a pillow or a chair, um, as soon as you let go, it pops right back. You know, the foam pops right back. And, and, and our basic structure of our egos are not much different than that. So that's where you need to go in and put in the kind of organizational work that picks up from the training and takes people into you know, reminding them about that training at times when they need it, you know, looking at the structures and systems that we have and seeing if there are ways that we can, you know, change them so that they're more biased resistant. So can we interview differently? Can we recruit people differently? Can we make job assignments differently? That sort of a thing. And then do we have an accountability system in place that can check to be sure that it's working and can give us, you know, real-time feedback about when certain groups are showing benefit and other groups are showing deficit at different times. So it's a whole system that needs to be put in place to change the culture of an organization. So training can be a very powerful beginning to that, and it can produce that aha and enlightened moment, but that doesn't mean, you know, there's an old saying from uh, Will Rogers, the, the great American satirist and comic, who, who said that, that just because you're on the right track doesn't mean you won't get run over if you just sit there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Howard, tell me about the role of ERGs in all this. How can they help? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think, you know, uh, we both know that, that, that this, this notion of um, employee resource groups as part of an evolution that started years ago with affinity groups. And, you know, and in those days, the affinity groups were really about a safe haven for people to go and be with people who are like them when they felt really isolated and they did and, and not a part of the culture. You know, you were the only woman or the only person or one of the only women or one of the only people of color or LGBTQ folks or whoever. Um, and they've evolved over the years because we realized that the, you know, that these groups could actually play an enormous um, positive role in the organization to help the organization understand needs and issues. Um, and um, we still know that 
depending on what organization you're in, those ERG, even though we sometimes change the name, we don't change the function. So some of those, what are now called ERGs, are still functioning like those old affinity groups. They're a place to go for safety. They're not really an organizational, um, they don't really function in the organization. Usually that's because of the organization itself, doesn't utilize them well. You know? But when they're used well, when they're used in a way that I know you advocate and, um, and some of the, you know, the best organizations are using them, they can be enormously helpful because um, a group of um, LGBTQ folks, for example, have a, can have a far greater insight into what are some of the subtle ways that our organization excludes people like us. Um, a group of um, a, a group of women can have a, a much keener sense of how gender dynamics are playing out in unconscious ways in the organization. Because I think anybody who's who's listening would know that if you if you want to understand um, how uh, the dynamics of an identity group play out, you're far more likely to get a more fulsome understanding of that from people who are in the non-dominant group than in the dominant group. And it's not because people in the dominant group are bad. It's just because if you're in a non-dominant group, you need to pay attention to those dynamics all the time. You know, as a Latino, you needed to be very conscious about those kinds of dynamics in ways that I never had to pay attention to if I didn't want to. But for your survival, you needed to understand how those dynamics play out. And so, and so that very insight and awareness um, that people needed to develop to survive becomes incredibly valuable information for the organization. Makes sense, Howard. Now, there are some challenges that ERGs need to address in order to be of the most value in the way that you just described. Talk about that challenge and your thoughts on the solution, Howard. The challenge is that, um, that, that the groups can still be insular. They can still, because of the way they're formulated in a lot of places, it can still be only about our concerns. And that's why one of the things I advocate, particularly for people who have, you know, down the road a little bit with ERGs, is to look at sometimes creating the ERGs not around identity, but around um, issue. So um, in other words, rather than having a woman's ERG, you have a gender equity ERG. And that gender equity ERG can include men and women. And that doesn't mean you don't have some time for people to be alone. So one of my clients, for example, has their gender equity um, ERG come together once a month. And um, uh, at least actually I haven't talked to them in a little bit, but this is what they were doing. And the first hour, Men are in one room, women are in another room, and they talk about what's been like for them. And then they come together, and for the next 90 minutes, they share what they determined, and then together come up with recommendations that they would make for the organization. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. You know, It reinforces the notion that that perspective is valuable, but it also reinforces the notion that ultimately we want to create a sense of belonging where we're all in this together. We don't want to leave, us, leave ourselves separate. So that process tends to infuse the learning into the organization in a healthier way. So here's what I got out of Howard so far. One, we all have biases and we always will. It's simply part of being human. Two, just because a person acquired a bias when they were young doesn't mean that they will always have it. Our brains continue to learn, adapt, and change throughout our entire lifetime. Three, even though we will always have biases, whether an old one we never changed or a new one recently acquired to replace one of the old ones or added to our collection due to some new experience, the good news is we don't have to act on it. We can always, to quote Howard, step on the clutch so that while the bias continues to be active, it does not drive our behavior. Four, while training is a good beginning for the journey toward understanding and managing biases in ourselves and in our organizations, it's only a first step. 
More than just training is needed to keep moving forward. Five, that's where you and your ERGs can provide a valuable support service. In the next half of this interview, we will take a closer look at that support and what it looks like and how you can prepare to provide it. All of this and more when we come back, but first, let's pause again to reflect on our program's mission and to acknowledge our sponsors. I'll see you on the other side. This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others that are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and find stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors. Atrium Health, Freighter Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, Lockheed Martin, Avenod, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. And we're back. Let's rejoin Howard where we left off and continue our conversation. So, Howard, as ERG leaders and members step into this process, you and I agree that this is not inviting them to play gotcha police. Rather than immediately swooping in uh, on the offensive when they hear some kind of trigger phrase or word, they need to assume a more supportive coaching role. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no question about it. And I think that this is... You know, first of all, I think this is one of the things that um, you know we're trying to do with the with, at the core with um, with the training aspect of this, with the education aspect of this, which is to get people to understand that just because somebody is acting in a certain way doesn't mean they had negative intentions. Um, and we see this, you know, all the time. I mean, you know, you see certain um, certain circumstances where it's completely obvious that people are just clueless. It's not that they're evil; they're clueless. And then there are other times, and it's hard to distinguish sometimes. But I think it's really it's 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 an important distinction. But I think if you um, if you begin to create um, an environment um, in which uh, in which vulnerability is valued. And this is one of the reasons why, as you know, Joe, I've been talking a lot about belonging for the last couple of years, which for me is the next level. I mean, it's, it's, it's more of an encompassing level. I mean, I like to say when people ask me, well, how do you distinguish? I like to say that, you know, Dr. Genetic Cole, my friend and mentor, likes to say that uh, diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is actually being allowed to dance. I like to say belonging is when you get to choose some of the music. You're actually part of the creation of the culture. It's not just... You know, we, you and I say to women, well, come on, you, you, you can be included in our organization, this male-dominated organization. That's very different than saying we want you to co-create the organization with us. And I think that when you begin to create that mindset, then we really see the value of exactly what you're talking about. Because if I, if I really do want to create a culture of belonging, and let's say just between you and I, you know, me being a, a Jewish white man and you being a Latino, you know, um, we might say, uh, you know, there's, there, there are things on both sides. You know, I might be able to bring something around anti-Semitism to your awareness that you're not really seeing. And you might be able to see something about, you know, your cultural background and, and discrimination and racism that, that you need, that you might see that I don't see. If we can have that kind of kind of uh, relationship where you come up and you say, look, Howard, I'm, I'm assuming you have the best of intentions. Um, and let me tell you how what you said 
impacted me without you realizing it. Well, I'm much more likely to be able to hear that and then be willing to change than if you say, that was a really racist thing you said. Because as soon as you say that, you know, that puts me on the defensive and I'm now in survival mode. And in survival mode, all I want to do is contract and get away from you or fight you. Now, now a lot of times when people hear that, what they'll say is, oh, you're letting people off the hook. And we're not letting people off the hook at all. We're just, we're, we're shifting from guilt and shame to responsibility. And that's a very important distinction, you know. Now, if I say, if you say that to me, you say, gee, you know, you may not have realized that this, Howard, but, you know, to, to somebody from my background, what you just said feels really offensive. And if, if my response is, well, don't be so thin-skinned, Joe, then go for it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> then go for it. <laughs> So, Howard, this obviously is not easy to do, for sure. What are some of the things that make it challenging for that ERG leader playing supportive coach to, uh, to keep their head cool and to, uh, and to not let themselves get triggered? One of the challenges, of course, is that oftentimes these dynamics are so wounding because we have such deep personal, um, what I call, you know, a normal um, you know, normal pathology, you know, we all have, you know, kind of normal neuroses around these things coming from our own wounding. So I might have some wounding from my background and you from yours and other people from theirs or from the social condition that we're living in. And so it's hard for us sometimes to see that what this person said might not have been conscious because it just seems so obvious to us. Uh, but, but, you know, again, when you're in the dominant group, uh, you may not be aware of things that are right in front of your face. I mean, I remember years ago, we had, um, we had a birthday party for Leslie. It was a big, I think it was a 40th birthday party or something. It was a big, big event. And we had a lot of family members and her mother and, you know, her father's uh, second wife, who was her stepmother, who, who was in from out of town and, and they were all there. And the morning after the big party, um, we're sitting around and, you know, having breakfast and open, Leslie's opening some presents that were left there. And, and her stepmother says, uh, yeah, I met this woman last night at the party. And she said she's having a baby with her partner. And uh, Leslie said, yeah, well, that's our friends, you know, Barbara and, and you know, Kathy who live behind us. And, and uh, she said, so uh, her stepmother going to say, I've never heard of somebody having a baby with their business partner before. And, um, and Leslie said, oh, they're not business partners, they're lesbians. And this look came over, you know, her stepmother's face. It's like startled look. It's like, I've never met one before, you know, this sort of a thing. And we said, not that you know of, of course, you know. But the point was, you know, in, inside of her context, you know, when she heard partner, that was the only context she had. Now, now that's a pretty extreme one. It, you know, that's 20 some years ago, but still. Um, but I think that there are those kinds of complete, blind spots. And we would look at something like that and say, God, you're completely clueless. And the truth is they are clueless. They literally have no clues to determine that because their life experience hasn't given them that. Now that doesn't mean that they're hostile to it necessarily. Sometimes it does because we tend to be, you know, a little bit uncertain about things that, that we're not, that we don't know about. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that they literally don't have any clue. So Howard, this is clearly challenging to deal with face to face. How does our current situation where most of us are working remotely affect this? One of the things that we know is that the more we know each other for who we are, the less we treat each other like what we are. So you and I have known each other for, God, what, 15, 20 years now, Joe. And, and you know, we're friends and we've worked together at times. And, you know, I, I love and appreciate you. And so the fact of the difference in our culture and background is there. 
but it, it, but our personal relationship by far outweighs that because we've learned to come to know each other and trust each other. We know what our value are, values are. We know what we stand for. And that just hasn't come from information that you shared with me or information I shared with you. That comes from the personal experience of being with each other and really valuing that relationship. You know, uh, And so we do know that there's lots of research that shows that biases begin to drop when you have personal relationships with people of the, the group. So if you've got a lot of personal relationships with African-Americans, your biases about African-Americans will tend to be less than if you've got no relationships with them. And it's, and it's supported by research. Data shows, for example, that racial bias is the highest in the parts of the country where there's the lowest amount of diversity. So that because, because when you're in those kinds of environments, um, basically, your attitude about, quote, those people, and I'm saying that with air quotes, um, is, uh, is very stereotyped. It's very characterized by stereotypes that you see. Whereas when you have a next door neighbor or your kid's best friend or somebody you work with, um, those stereotypes start to break down because, hey, you're not acting like those stereotypes. So maybe those things just are stereotypes, you know? So, so I think that there's a real loss of that. And I think that um, people can address that by building in um, social, reflective, and um, sharing time as part of their process. So say more about that building in of sharing time. How are you advising leaders and others who assemble groups to do this? What can our listeners recommend to leaders and others in their organizations? Well, I think, you know, I think we have to understand, uh, first of all, the limitations of these kinds of environments. I mean, thank, you know, thank God we do have these environments now as opposed to how we might have had to deal with this thing 20, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, it would have been, imagine a nightmare if all we had was telephone connection and, and, and really not even easy group phone call connections in those days, you know, so it would have been a very, very different circumstance. But I think that, um, I think that there are a number of things. I think that there are many people um, I know who are starting and I, I'm, I'm working with clients to, to do this. So occasionally, like once a week, have a meeting, which is only about how are you doing? You know, um, I had one client I talked to that has three water cooler meetings set up every day that people can check in and out of. And, and if they want to, 15, 20 minutes where they, you know, anytime you want, just check in, how are you doing? God, I've had a hard morning, blah, 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 you know, like, like you would sit around water cooler. And I think that uh, another uh, client of mine who I talked to recently was saying at the beginning of her staff meeting every week, um, she takes 15 minutes and she gives her staff a chance to just check in. They each of them get a chance to check in and see how they're doing before they get to the business because she wants to know how they're holding up. She also checks in with them individually. She calls each of them once a week or sends them a note and says, you know, how are you holding up? Anything, any challenges? Uh, so, um, so I do think that it's so important for us at, at a time like this to, to pay attention to the human needs of our people. And, and in the long run, it'll benefit the business as well. That's great advice for ERG leaders to share. And likewise, it's probably a good idea for these ERG leaders to invite and connect and provide room for the full engagement of senior leaders in their meetings as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is why it's so valuable um, when um, leaders, especially leaders from the dominant group, are invited to have regular interaction with ERGs. You know, if, it's, it's, if I'm a white male leader of an organization and I have a chance to regularly communicate with, uh, you know, the, the African-American ERG, for example, um, and we, we create a relationship where I'm there to listen and to learn and to engage personally, then all of a sudden I begin to understand people's situation in a much deeper way than I ever have before. And that's something that's, that's really irreplaceable in terms of my understanding of how many of the people in my organization are functioning. Um, so I think that that you know those kinds of relationships are are incredibly important um, for us for our understanding. 
Absolutely. Hey, it sounds like the puppy decided to join us. I know. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry about that. This is this is the other problem with with our remote world these days. It's like puppy, the puppy in the back room, right? Yeah. So <laughs> no worries. This is the new normal. Puppies are invited. <laughs> so Howard, for ERG leaders to become the person that can be this supportive coach that can help promote more inclusion and belonging. They need more than an unconscious bias training program or even the kind of intense learning lab that I attended with you years ago, right? As an example, just take a few moments to share with us what that journey has been like for you. For me, this process of trying to understand myself and how I think and, and how I react has been a lifelong um, exercise. I mean, I, I started when I was a teenager doing civil rights work and I continued to do personal development work really through my whole life. and. You know, I, I've done God only knows how many different personal development programs and, you know, working on myself and trying to understand myself. And I, I think that, that, you know, the process of understanding ourselves as human beings is the greatest opportunity we have for, for transforming our lives and the quality of our lives. And so, so you know, no, a two-hour training is not going to do it. And even a three- or four-day session like you were talking about is not going to do it. So, Howard, what tools do you recommend that our ERG leaders that are listening use to help them through this journey? Using tools like the Enneagram, which is a typing tool that helps people understand their sort of orientation. Some people use Myers-Briggs or things like, or DISC is another one that's very popular. All of these things are, are really all about the same thing, which is, how do I understand myself and then bring my full self to the engagement with others? And um, if they can understand me because I share what I've learned about myself, then it'll be easier for them to work with me and less likely that they'll be triggered or make false assumptions about what my intentions are. So it really all boils down to going on a journey where you continue to raise your own self-awareness. That's, that's exactly right. It's, it's all about leading a conscious life. Absolutely. So Howard, what are the partnerships that you think ERGs need to form to be the most effective in this role? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the natural things you tend to think about around that, well, clearly the, the, the diversity team is, is obviously, if you've got a diversity function in the organization, they've got to be part of that, and human resources usually as well, although sometimes, as we know, human resources functions show very differently in certain organizations, and many organizations human resources functions are serve more of just a protective function to make sure people don't do stuff to get the organization in trouble. And, and in those, those kind of circumstances, sometimes there can be tension between the diversity organization and the human resources organization, not because anybody's a bad person or not because the HR people don't believe in diversity, but because they have a different function. The legal function also can fall on that side, you know? So the legal and the HR people, their job is to keep the organization safe. Our job in diversity, inclusion, and belonging is to stretch is to say, you know, how do we how do we break out of some of the old patterns we have? And so it's it's obvious why where that could be tension. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. <clears throat> Excuse me. It just means that we should be in conversation about that and be very open with each other about that so that we can work together. But ultimately I think that the, the best situations that I've seen with ERGs is when ERGs really are very much as you talked about earlier, are um, are seen as, as almost like a counseling function in the organization and they can help anybody. So if you're in a manufacturing area and you've got a lot of, you know, people of a particular group, we have a lot, you know, a lot of organizations where the diversity in the organization gets much deeper as you get down into the organization relative to the top. And, you know, maybe that's a place where, you know, the people from the ERG come and they do some work with the leadership of that particular team and say, gee, you've got all these people who are of color in your team and much more than any place else. 
let's talk about how that might occur for them and how they might feel about being at the lower echelon and being more of color and having the higher echelons being almost all white, just as an example, you know. And so I, I think that that um, those probably, you know, the diversity function, the HR function, as I said before, tied into leadership, having access to leadership, all of those are sort of core functions. But ultimately, I see it almost like as an octopus with tentacles that goes out into all, all different potentials in the organization. You know, if you've got you're, you're setting up your recruiting function. You know, it's crazy not to go and talk to the ARGs and say, is there anything in our recruiting function that might be turning people off? You know, I mean, how many stories have you heard over the years, Joe, of a woman who was being wooed by an organization and they took her someplace during the interview process that offended her and so she went and worked somewhere else? You know, I mean, how many times have we heard stories like that? And, and all they needed was to check with their, with their gender ERG and people would say, do not take her to that restaurant. That restaurant has a bad opinion. Or somebody once was taken to the Cosmo Club in New York, which for years didn't allow women, you know? And she was, she was saying, of all places to take me, take me to the Cosmo Club, which had a history of being sexist, you know? It's like, what does that say about you as an organization? You're not more sensitive to that, you know? So, um, so those are the kinds of things I think where, where the ERGs could be enormously helpful on almost a day-to-day basis. I like that visual of the octopus image. I usually tell ERG leaders and DEI leaders that they need to have lots of relationships across the company and not just a monogamous one with HR or DEI or anybody. So Howard, I recall in the first half of this interview, you mentioned the book. Tell us more about that book. Oh, right now, the tentative name of it is Building Belonging. I'm writing it with my son, Jay who just uh, uh, just graduated from Berkeley last Saturday with his degree in positive psychology and did his thesis on joy in the workplace. And so um, <clears throat> you know, we're building on the theme of belonging. And, um, and the intention of it is that this would be um, a guidebook for people who really do want to create a greater sense of belonging in their organizations. The book, the last book, Our Search for Belonging, really focused as much on the societal structure of, of polarization that we're dealing with and why it is that we tend to tribalize the way we do. And so we're building off of that and, and looking at that. And then, and then um, this summer, um, the second edition of Everyday Bias, my second book will come out with a lot of new information in it um, about some of the incidents and things that we've had and some new research that we've had as well. So, so it's sort of a busy time. Wow, you are busy. Well, first, congratulations to Jake, you, and Leslie. You know, it certainly makes me aware of the passage of time. I remember the last time I saw Jake in your office years ago, he was a curly-haired teenager. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. We, he just he just graduated from Berkeley with honors. We're very proud of him. As you should be. That's great. So, Howard, where can my listeners reach you? Um, best way is howardjross.com. We've got a, you know, that's the website we've got right now. We're putting up a website for Udarta, our new company, but the howardjross.com is the best way. I'm also on LinkedIn, so people could find me on LinkedIn as well. Great. Howard, thanks again for joining me today on ERG Power Talk. Joe, it's always so great to connect with you. Thanks so much for having me. So here's what I got from listening to Howard talk about what you can do to become most effective as a coach that helps members of your organization continue to evolve toward inclusion and pass unconscious biases. One, embark first on your own journey of self-discovery. Become aware of your own psychic wounds and triggers so that you can manage them in yourself more effectively and empathize with others. Any basic unconscious bias program can provide a good start here. Two, 
Next, you want to continue your self-development journey as well as help others to develop more self-awareness using tools like Myers-Briggs, Enneagrams, DISC, etc. Three, as you reach out to help others, you want to avoid at all costs becoming a member of the gotcha police and being accusatory in either your tone or your approach. Four, you want to recognize that others are dealing with their own psychic wounds and triggers. When you hear something that you find initially hurtful or seems clueless, try to remember that they are probably responding from a different cultural context or just acting out to protect their own psychic soft spots. It's generally not about hurting you. Five, you want to reach out across your entire organization to help others. You can do this by A, encouraging leaders to open up and share. The more that they and their staff open up and share openly with each other, the more inclusive their relationships will become and the less of a chance for unconscious negative biases to creep in and damage their relationships. Encouraging leaders to set up this type of personal sharing is especially important now that many people are in separate locations. A virtual water cooler is an easy solution you can recommend. And B, volunteer to serve as a sounding board and coach in areas where you have a unique set of insights due to your own cultural background. Six, this of course means that you need to be like Howard's octopus with tentacles that extend out to various parts of the organization and its leadership. Yes, have a relationship with DEI. Yes, have a relationship with HR. Just make sure that those are not the only relationships that you develop and nurture. There's an old saying that I heard many years ago that goes like this. You can only take others as far as you've gone yourself. As an ERG leader and member, you're in a great position to help take many of your leaders, colleagues, and teammates to higher levels of personal bias, self-mastery, and greater inclusion. But... For you to keep being a supportive leader, it requires that you continue to evolve and develop yourself first. Thank you for tuning in to ERG Power Talk. If you enjoyed and got value out of this program, please like us and leave a favorable review at your podcast provider's site. Also, invite others to listen to the show. By the way, Contact me if you're looking for an ERG symposium keynote or a leader for your strategy workshop, new chair onboarding, and or ERG bootcamp. I can run these for you either in person or in a virtual setting. Also, for more great ideas and tips for your ERGs, get my book, Supercharger ERGs, 18 Tips to Power Up Your ERG Strategy on Amazon.com. I'm Joe Santana, and thanks again for tuning in.